Let's open up to Acts chapter 24, please. I want to thank the Lord and praise you guys. Uh, you know, just thank you for all your prayers. Uh, I really appreciate it, Christine. I do appreciate it. It's been trying to say the least, uh, having part of your body removed and uh, all that great stuff. Um, but, you know, the Lord, is he's so faithful. He's so good. He always is, all the time. And um, so I just, uh, you know, want to say from, from my heart that uh, the Lord's teaching me a lot. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. When you go through trials, he teaches you things. Either you get stubborn, hard-hearted, and you revert into fear, or you step into the only hope that we actually have, which is Jesus Christ. And he begins to teach us. And he doesn't take everything away and make it rainbows and unicorns. Do you know that? Actually, it gets worse a lot of the times. Fear not. He's overcome the world. Amen. So continue to pray for me, yes, in, in the area of uh, healing. I'd love that. But more so in the, in, the, in the kingdom of the heart. That fear would be resolved where, it's, um, where it pops up, because it does all the time. It's a lot of hurry up and wait, as we're going to see with Paul. Uh, here he's just, uh, you know, waiting for his trial date for someone to decide what happens to his life, and then it gets postponed a couple of days. He has to wait a couple of days, then, then, four, then two years, and then, you know, really, it, it, as we look at life, it's really not in our hands. And God is sovereign, and we need to trust in, in his goodness. Amen? So um, as we approach the Word, I want to continue in the Word. Uh, and so we go to the Word and, and let the Lord speak to us where we are and, and for me, as I was reading through just even these things before Felix as uh, uh, Paul's trial before Felix as governor, um, you know, a lot of stuff just even hit me personally where I was going about the hurry up and wait for Paul, you know. But that might, might not necessarily be what speaks to you. And, and kind of as we're in the back half of Acts, we're, we're kind of going into the trial. So it's just basically going up the, the court system. And um, what does God do in that situation when, when the things are out of your control? What do you do with your circumstances? Look at the person of, of Paul. What, what do you do? Um, and, and how do you uh, respond in a godly way? What is our witness? What, what's it all about, you know? And, and so just how, whatever the Lord is speaking to you in this passage, write it down. Uh, talk to him about it. And, and, and let your heart be encouraged or be warned, you know? I mean, time is short, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> and so... Uh, Let's, uh, let's just come before the Lord and ask him, uh, Lord, we come before your, your word. You say that you lift your word above your name. I don't even know what that means. Uh, that you have Jesus, a name above all names. And only by him, you, anybody can be saved. By faith in Jesus, that, the power and the authority of Jesus Christ over sin and death. And yet you take your word and you put it above your name. Lord, how, how focused we need to be on what you say. Because I think it reflects your very heart and your very being. And so pierce us with your words, Lord. Change us from the innermost being, Lord. Give us ears to hear spiritual things. Things that are truly eternal. Turn us away from the life of, of mediocrity and, and all these types of uh, just being caught up with the the entanglements of sin and free us, Lord, to walk in you and help us to have the faith to follow you today. 
into whatever path, whatever valley, whatever shadow, whatever uh, hilltop you have for us. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen. It says in 24, chapter 24, verse 1, it says, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, uh, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. And so Paul is in the coastal city of Caesarea, as we read in chapter 24, I've been there. It's beautiful. It's just, man, what a beautiful place to have a palace. And this is where Herod the Great built a great palace there. And, and basically, Herod's been removed since then for a few years. Um, but now there's this beautiful palace, and this is where Paul is now. He's being held captive at the governor's palace. Some people believe there's prisons there and all that stuff, maybe or maybe not. Um, but it's right there on the water. And he's just been rushed out of Jerusalem by night by 470 Roman soldiers as there were more than 40 Jews waiting to kill him at any time. They took a vow not to eat, and so by this time they're pretty hungry because he escaped. Now the Roman commander caught wind of of, of that by Paul's nephew, who just so happened to be overhearing the whole conversation. God has his people on the inside, amen? I love that about the Lord. And so he rushed him out of Jerusalem onto Felix, who's the governor of the whole region in Caesarea. And Claudius Lysias, that Roman commander who was in Jerusalem, who rescued kind of Paul, so to speak, he sends a letter to Felix explaining that he rescued Paul, uh, a Roman citizen, very important, uh, a Roman citizen, because a Roman citizen has due process, they have rights, and that was very important to a Roman uh, and so a Roman citizen, is, he took him out of the hands of the Jewish mob. And in verse 29, it says, of the previous chapter, uh, actually 28, it says, In wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I, the commander, brought him down to their council, that's the Sanhedrin, and I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving of death or imprisonment. And when I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring their charges against him before you. And so Paul is moving up the court system. This commander sends him off to Caesarea. And in verse 1 of chapter 24, Paul's accusers, they arrive after five days. The high priest uh, Ananias and some elders with their attorney. You always have to have an attorney when you're going to go do something horrible and... Uh, named Tertullus, and they bring their charges against Paul. And verse 2 says, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus, this lawyer, orator, uh, began to accuse him, saying to the governor, now just bear with it, this is hard to take, since we have, uh, through you, you know, uh, attained much peace, and since by your providential, uh, providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere. Most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. <laughs> but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Obviously, I'm reading that into it, but the reason why I'm reading that way is because you read historians, and they say a lot about Felix. 
a lot about Felix. It's pretty interesting. And so Tertullius is this guy. He's just laying it on thick before the court. He's able to speak the king's language. The Jews are there. So he's able to articulate in great and flowery words everything that would kind of be tickling uh, Felix's ears. And so they're ascribing these great, this great regional peace and reforms at the hands of Felix. And they're saying how thankful they are in every way and every, everywhere. You know, don't you love that when, when, you can, when a politician's going to come up and give a speech and you have someone who comes up before them and they just start talking about like, man, they just came from Krypton. And they flew in and just rescued the world. And here they are, just give them the keys to the kingdom. And this is the kind of the, the thing that's going on. And it's all lies. Uh, you can just see the Jews gagging at this lawyer. I mean, they just hate the Romans, right? And, and he's, just, he's just buttering up Felix. And Felix was once a slave. And he got his position because his brother was a friend of the Emperor Claudius and then Nero. And so Felix's brother uh, was a freedman, which means he was given his freedom. And, and uh, so basically they were in with the emperor. And so he goes, hey, give my brother this position. And, and the emperor does give that tact. Uh, Tacitus, a historian, uh, says of Felix that Felix exercised the royal prerogative in a slavish sense with all manner of cruelties and excess. I mean, he was like a slave in a king's position, and he just, he let everybody have it. Um, he was just excessive in his power. He indulged, he went on to say, he indulges in every kind of barbarity and lust. Uh, he also said that Felix uh, thought that he could do any evil act with impunity. In other words, he abused his power without fear of consequence. That's what this, the historians, not only him, but other people, were, were saying about Felix and his rule. You know, there's, there's always people would say about you that you want to hear, but then there's a reality of what is actually happening, Right? And he had a great, an example is he had a great rival during the time with one of the, a rivalry with one of the other governors of the region, uh, Ventidus uh, Comenus. Okay, we'll just call him Comenus. And, and these two would send bands of robbers back and forth. Comenus would have the Galilee region and, uh, and, uh, and uh, sorry, Felix would have Samaria and they would just rile up and get people to go attack each other and plunder each other's land. And they would, it would just, and it got so bad that a third commander, a third regional guy from Syria up north, Quadricus or something like that, had to send his army down and stop the whole thing because it was about to go into civil war. And so you can see these guys are, we have received much peace by you everywhere and in every way. It's just a load, you know? I mean, it's just horrible. And so Felix, uh, they were brought, Felix and this other guy this, who were, were brought before the emperor. And the emperor, uh, because I think there was some inside political swaying, they charged the other guy with all the problems. And then they gave Felix, that guy's region. And so Felix, his power is expanding. And this guy is, is pretty, pretty interesting. And so when this lawyer is saying that they were enjoying much peace and reforms and all the rainbows and unicorns that filled their life, it was all lies. And Felix was a horrible governor. He abused power. Um, he stirred up trouble, and so he could crush people. He took advantage of his subjects for his own gain and almost started a civil war. That's the reality of history. Um, and so Tertullus, the lawyer, he opines in verse 4, uh, but that I may not weary you any further with all of how wonderful you are, 
I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. And so my guess is that Felix kind of, as he's talking, he's like, okay, I've heard this before. Let's get going. And he realized he had to move on. And so they began to lay out the charges against Paul. And he says, for we have found this man a real pest, a pestilence, uh, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the whole world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so the very first charge, he's going to bring three charges or three or four charges against Paul, but the very first thing is insurrection. And one thing the Romans did not tolerate was insurrection. If you started to usurp their authority, mess with their government, they would crush you. That's what they did. And they did it with impunity. They crushed people, right? And so that if there was going to be one charge that was going to stick against Paul, is that this guy is, is, is a part of this rebel band of leaders that is causing civil unrest. Does that make sense? So that's why they're bringing this up. And so not only are they painting uh, him as a seditionist, an anti-authoritarian, anti-government type person, the second thing they do is that he's the ringleader. He's not only part of doing that, he's a ringleader of a sect that actually does that kind of stuff. And so he calls them the Nazarenes, which obviously is what? The people who would follow Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so they're, they're painting that sect as someone that is radical and crazy and are causing civil disturbances. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's kind of weird how people paint people who love Jesus, who follow his word, who want to follow him as a radical, far, crazy, whatever it is, sect of... Now, don't get me wrong. There's the Danbury Baptists, or not Danbury, excuse me, uh, whatever, Westboro Baptists, um, you know, and that crazy type of stuff uh, going on, which is out of this world. That is, that's not what Jesus would do. But this is the painting. So there's that sedition, and there's also he's a ringleader. And the third thing... Uh, in verse 6, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. And this is kind of what they're really caring about. So they charged Paul with desecrating the temple by supposedly that he brought a Gentile into their courts and the grounds. And so that is all they have. Sedition, leader of a rebel group, and desecrating the temple. And then we arrested him. Uh, Now I have to make a mention. Uh, How many of you have a New King James Version or a King James Version of your Bible? Cool. How many of you uh, have NIVs out there? Do you see something missing or different? Some, some of you, do you, have a ver, do you have a verses missing, anyone? Verse 7. So some of you have verses missing. Some of you will have them in there, but they're in there with brackets, right? Does anybody have that? I think you'll see these brackets in there, like from the middle of verse 6 to the middle of verse 8. Anyone? Or someone will have a little star next to it, and they'll, then they'll say that those verses are different. In other words, what is happening is, is those verses between 6b, halfway through 6, and the beginning of 8, when they go back to the original text, some of the original texts have it in there, some of, them, some of it don't. So it doesn't. Do not. So what do you do with that? Right? What do you do with that? Do you leave it in or do you leave it out? Well, some people leave it in, but they make a mark that it could be out. Some people leave it out and they put a mark saying it could be in. Some of them put a bracket, so they don't know what to do there. Does that make sense? It doesn't change the story. All the things that they have in those brackets were already said in reality. Does that make sense? It doesn't change the story. And people will take this and they go, ah, see, the Bible isn't true. 
well, I don't know. You know, what do we do with that? It's kind of one of those things. So I just had to give you a note there that some people are leaving it in. Some people, you know, NIV, sometimes earlier versions will have it out. My version of NIV has it in with brackets. And so um, I know that's going to really help you this week, but I just really wanted to make sure you go, hey, what's going on here? Uh, And so uh, it says in verse 6, we granted to judge him according to our law. Right? So he says, then we arrested him, and then, it's, and then here's the part that was left out or left in. It says, we wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Okay, close quote. So, by examining him yourself, next verse, concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And I was just, just examine him and you're going to see that everything we said, that he's, in, he's against your government, he's causing civil unrest, he's a ringleader, and he desecrated our temple, just examine him and you're going to see that we are right. And so uh, the Jews also joined in and attacked, as, as, asserting these things were also true. So the Jews that were there, they spoke up as well. Verse 10, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, knowing that for many years, and here's Paul's response, ready? Now balance that with the other guy. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. What does he say? He says, oh, well, it's hard to be a Christian sometimes, you know what I mean? You're in front of a judge, you know, you can't butter him up. You just, hey, you've been a judge for a while. I'm glad to be able to share with you. <laughs> That's all Paul can say. And so after this lawyer speaks, Paul has to reply. And Paul can't lie. Uh, but the other guy can, you know. Paul can only be a polite, and he says, you've been a judge, and I'm happy to make my defense. And you know, the enemy has so many tools at his disposal, in his accusation against us. You know that? He has so many tools at his disposal uh, to accuse us. Do you know that? I mean, how many tools does that guy have? A lot. He has flattery. He has manipulation here, embellishment, lies, accusations that are false, to name a few. You see these things at play there? And the whole thing is to manipulate, to massage that person's ego to where they would have favor and see it their way. That's not how we operate as Christians. We operate in truth and love. Amen? We're not manipulators. We're truth people in love. And so Paul just is, is, we are armed with truth, with love, and by the way, with the power of the Holy Spirit. With the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is being brought into where his life depended upon what happens in this circumstance. He knows that God said he's going to Rome, so he's trusting in that. But regardless, what do you do in circumstances to where you are brought into situations where you must give a defense? And this is really interesting because Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 12, beginning in verse 11, he says, when they bring you before synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, what does it say? Do not worry about how or about how or what you are uh, to speak in your defense or what you are to say for the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say don't wake up all night writing your paper about your defense on stuff he just says the holy spirit's going to teach you you need to trust me in those moments when you are brought before your boss 
because you shared Jesus with someone. When you are brought to a situation to where you are needing to give a defense for what you have done in the Lord, what does he say? Don't worry. Trust in the Lord and he will teach you what you're going to say. Don't worry about how you're going to say it. Oh, I've got to come off like this. I've got to butter him up. No, just let it go. And trust the Lord. And he will give you what you need to say at that very moment. And you'll notice Paul's defense is just the truth. He just lays out the truth. And that's by the Holy Spirit. Verse 10b, the second half. So Paul says to Felix, knowing that for many years you've been a judge of this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Verse 11, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Fact, I went to Jerusalem to worship 12 days ago. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Fact. Nor can they prove to you the charges which they now accuse me. And so Paul says, I was in Jerusalem 12 days ago to worship. I wasn't meeting or talking with people anywhere. I wasn't in the synagogue or the temple in the streets debating. I did not start a riot. I was there to worship. And they can't prove otherwise. And he just lays down the truth. And so this first charge against Paul about insurrection, about sedition, uh, Paul just says, hey, I was in the temple to worship. No, no, I wasn't doing all that stuff they were talking about. And isn't that great to be able to be a Christian and walk in integrity? And when people bring accusations, you just say, that's not true. But the problem is (laughs) when it is true. How many of us go, we walk around with a guilty conscience. He's going to talk about that. But for Paul, it wasn't true. I was doing what I was called to do. This is into the second charge of being a ringleader in the Nazarene sect, verse 14. But this I admit to you, he says, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. I am guilty of being a part of the way, the Nazarenes that follow Jesus Christ. Amen? Believing, though, he says, but I serve God our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men, these guys are accusing you, they cherish themselves, and this is what they cherish, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. And so Paul says, yes, I'm part of the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christians became a mocking term by people uh, that would give Christians. They weren't called Christians by themselves. People called them Christians. That means little Christ. Just like Jesus. What a great term to be called, truly. But now Christians means hypocrite quite often. Right? Sad. He says, I'm part of the way. It's not a way, it is the way. Jesus is the way, the narrow gate, the door. There is no other way to which man on earth could ever save themselves or come to the Father except through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ by faith in him. That's it. And so Paul says, yes, I'm part of the way. And Paul clarifies that following Jesus does not contradict the law and the prophets. 
following Jesus does not contradict the law and the prophets, and actually he serves the same God as the patriarchs of the Old Testament and, and believes everything that is in accordance of law and all that's in the prophets. We do too. We believe the law 100%. We believe in the prophets 100%. Now the applications of those things is where we differ between the Jews in this situation. That's what Paul differed in. Because you see that after Jesus rose again, if you remember that, he, he met the disciples on the road to Emmaus just a couple days, three days after, uh, well, on the day of his resurrection, in Luke 24, 25, and it's one of the greatest sermons never heard. In verse 25, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then the, the sermon I want to go back in time to listen to, he says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. The law which is Moses, and the prophets all point to Jesus Christ. We don't contradict that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. His law is holy and it is perfect. And the prophets point to the Messiah that would save a people who could never meet the demands of the law through faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who could meet those demands. Amen. He is our righteousness. And specifically, he points to the law and the prophets point to his death and resurrection. And we see that as we go through the Old Testament. Remember when we taught through Genesis? Remember when we got to Joseph and we saw all the types and the pictures of, of Christ and Joseph, and particularly little things like uh, he's going, these, these two guys come and they give him dreams, and one is a person who makes bread, and the other person is a cupbearer. And one happens to... It said one happen, will be restored within three days and the other one will lose his head. And you've got the bread and you've got the cup and you've got the resurrection and all these things pictured there within uh, the Old Testament. And so it's over and over and over and over and over and over pictures of the Messiah through people's lives, through the lineage, through the stories, through everything, all pointing to Jesus Christ. And that he would come and he would suffer and die. And die. I read Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, all these things over and over and over again. So, no sedition, no insurrection. I'm actually in line with what the, tru- what the scriptures truly say. And so Paul says, we're not off the reservation. We are Bible-believing followers of God. I do serve God our fathers, believing everything that is according to the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope which these men also cherish. And so he talks about the resurrection. And there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And Paul points to this crucial doctrine of the resurrection, that Jesus rose again, and so all men will, f- will face Christ. Wicked and righteous will all stand before Christ and be judged. That is a powerful powerful doctrine in the scriptures. And remember, there's Pharisees in this room accusing him uh, uh, who, who also believe in the resurrection. And so Paul's essentially saying, I believe in the hope of the resurrection and these guys cherish it. They don't believe in the same way I do. It isn't something they disagree with. Christ, yes, but the resurrection, no. They, 
and so and Paul says something, uh, uh, something he has already said, and he's going to repeat again in this trial regarding the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. In verse 16, he says, in view of this, in view that there's going to be a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, what does he do? He says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. In chapter 23, Paul is before the Sanhedrin. Just before this, many of these same Jews, in his opening statement, right before he gets popped in the mouth, what does he say? His first words are, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. He says it again here in chapter 24. What is Paul saying? What does he mean? In light of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked, in light of the judgment day which we all face, I have a clean conscience. He says, I, I do my best to maintain that. How many of you have a clean conscience before God this morning? A clean conscience before God. Tell you what, most people don't. Most Christians don't. They're living double lives. They got one fist in the gutter, one fist, one, you know, one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. And we know it. And the law weighs heavy upon our hearts. And it should because that's the purpose of it. Hebrews 9.27 says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. But you, this is Romans, I think. But you, no, it goes on. It says, but you, why? No, it says Romans, uh, somewhere I didn't put the reference for some reason. Uh, but you, who, uh, who, who you judge your brother, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written. And he goes on. Romans 14.10, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God or confess, so that each man... Yeah, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerate uh, his tolerance and patience, not knowing that his kindness leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who, selfish, who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also for the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God says every man will be judged by what we have done. It's not the end of the story. We were judged by everything we've done. He's not partial the secrets, what we should have done, could have done, 
And that should just weigh like a ton of bricks upon the world. It should scare us to death because he's righteous and holy. And his fury awaits the sinner. Oh, it awaits us. Many of us have no clue what Paul is saying when he says in verse 16, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and men. You know, let me tell you that as I'm facing mortality, as I'm facing mortality, these verses come into focus. You will give an account. What have you done with your life? What have you done with my son? You're going, oh, you're a pastor, you're good. Lies. He gives a heavier responsibility if you're up here teaching. What have you done? Let me tell you, if you have a guilty conscience, that is all wrapped up in fear of, God, of judgment. That's fear of judgment upon your life. If you have a guilty conscience, if you're living in fear of that, that is because that's unresolved in your heart, in your mind, between you and God. And rightfully so, God made us that way as a means of his grace. And we try to medicate that or escape that or run away from that. I've done it. Anybody else done it? And we have the most medication, like, on the planet in our country. And, and I know there's reasons, and medication is good for many reasons, but I tell you what, there's a, there's a lot of mental problems that are wrapped up in a guilty conscience towards God because we, we're not made to carry the weight of sin like that. It messes with our soul. It messes with our bodies. It messes with our beings thoroughly through and through. And if we aren't freed from that, if we aren't freed from that, and we can't free ourselves, by the way, if we're not freed from that, we're given over to reprobate mind. And we go further and further and further in it is darker and darker and darker and more complex. And so let me say that if you have a guilty conscience, man, that is the weight of the law upon you. Let me tell you why. If you keep reading in Romans 2, it speaks of the law of God being written on our hearts. He, Paul's amazing in Romans. He says, okay, you, you people who have the actual physical law, the commandments, that's great. But what about the people who don't have the law? What about all those Gentiles? What about the rest of the world? It's written on our hearts. God inscribed it in the man's hearts. In other words, we know good, right from wrong. And when... It says in Romans 2, when we, are, when we are lawbreakers, our conscience bears witness and our thoughts accuse us and we fear judgment because Paul says on that day, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And so what do you do with that guilty conscience as a, as a believer? As a believer, if you're not a believer, the only way that you can be remove that weight of the law is to be driven to the Savior who can take it, and that is Jesus Christ. But as, as a believer, I want to talk to Christians, as most of you are, right? It says, first of all, and this is my thing, first of all, confess your sin. 
you got to call it like it is. God, I have done, and you tell him specifically what that is. Don't speak in generalities. You talk about the darkness, and you talk about exactly what it is and who it is and how it happened and all that stuff, and you lay it out before the king. You purge your heart, and you, you say, this is exactly. You don't leave out details. I'm just telling you from experience, okay? Lay it out before the king. And you give him your fears, and I fear your judgment, and I fear your displeasure, and, I, and, and all these types, you just lay it before him. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from, there's that beautiful word, all unrighteousness. We confess, and he is faithful to cleanse us from all. So we confess our sins. Secondly, repent. And I know this isn't exactly in order, kind of, kind of all, it's kind of a package deal, but repent. You have to stop what you were doing. You have to choose in your heart to stop. And you stop doing that thing. You say, Lord, I'm changing my mind. I agree with what you say. And I agree with what you say about where I am. I need to stop. And this happens by faith. We turn away. It's not by how you feel or what they say about what should happen or the world or, you know, your addiction should be this or that. You choose to follow Jesus. And let me tell you what it feels like. It feels like the cross. It feels like you got nailed. It feels like you can't bear it. But as you turn towards the Lord, he gives you the strength to be healed. That's all him. He's working it in you. So repent. Stop violating the law of God by turning from sin and turning towards him. That's all a work of grace in our hearts. Jesus said, deny yourself. And then lastly, follow Jesus. He doesn't tell us just to, oh God, I'm bad. Okay, I'll stop doing that. Then he tells you to start doing something. So he now follow Jesus. Go put, replace what he said, those, those dark, that darkness with light. Stop stealing, start giving. Ephesians, right? And other places. We start walking in the light. We do the opposite. Stop speaking lies. Start telling truth. And we know that that's sanctification. The Lord has to work that out in our hearts over time, right? But we step out in obedience. That's beautiful. Jesus said, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me, is what he said. Follow him. This is obedience. Obedience is manifested faith. Obedience is manifested faith, right? Disobedience is unbelief. Disobedience is unbelief. That's Hebrews 3. But when Christ appears as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood in, of, of goats and of bulls and the ashes of heifers, uh, sprink, sprinkling those who have been, who've defi- have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, excuse me, saying in the Old Testament, they would take, uh, there would be a sacrifices and they'd take the bulls and goats and they'd sprinkle it on the people. It was symbolic of being cleansed. He says, 
Bulls and goats didn't cut it. That was just something they did that would look forward to Jesus, who actually was the sacrifice. His blood is sprinkled on his people. And he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ, his blood, his sacrifice, cleanses the conscience of the sinner thoroughly and totally. That is the pill we need. That is the medication we need. Jesus Christ, faith in him, he cleanses us from all. And when you hear that all your guilty stains are washed away by the blood of Jesus, and he's cleansed you from all, I'm free. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And not only does He free you, now He cleanses you from dead works to now walk in good works, which is faith. And that's how we live as Christians. Faith without works is dead faith. A saving faith is demonstrated by that new life of obedience in Jesus. Amen? the spirit-filled life of obedience. And Paul says, I make every effort to have a clean conscience. If I could translate that into even a little bit more, just realize that this is me, but it says, to make sure I'm, I'm keeping in step with the spirit. Does that make sense? I make sure that there's nothing between me and the Lord. That when the Holy Spirit says no, I say yes, amen. I obey that we, when we read the word and it comes to something that we are not doing and we should, we said, Lord, I'm stepping out in this. No matter how I feel, what I do, I'm following you. And in the things that we don't do, that the Lord brings into our mind, we just start saying, Lord, I want to please you. And we're just keeping in step with the spirit, a spirit-led people, not a law. Does that make sense? And we're following Jesus' teachings and, and we're applying them and we're walking in it. Paul says, I make every effort to have that clean conscience before God. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from dead life, that old life, and now we're walking in the newness of life because on one day, I'm going to give an account before the Lord, and so will you. And the one thing I love about the Lord is that in Christ, those who are his will not give an account, I believe, to, uh, for judgment but it's for rewards, the Bema seat of Christ, the mercy seat of Christ. But let me tell you that Paul does not teach that you receive Jesus and you can live like hell. He says, I make every effort. I work out my salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, if the salvation's true, it's going to be worked out on a daily basis in my life. I'm not saving myself, but it's proof that I am saved. And if we don't see that in a life, if we don't see that, and I can't judge men's hearts, you can only see fruit, right? We have to look at that and seriously consider, are we saved? And that's that tension between the sovereignty of God and, and the responsibility of man that happens all through Scripture. God saves, but we must work out that salvation with fear and trembling. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? 
But what does it say a few verses later in 8.4? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's no condemnation for those who don't walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. That's what it means to be in Christ. I hope you're going, Ugh. that's what I, oh, you got to be going, Phew. right? And it's a holy thing. It's not a judgment thing. It's like, this should drive you to Jesus this morning. It should run, make you go, ah, Lord, this is what I hear. There's a little fear going on. I don't want fear. What's going on in my life? What's go- am, I, am I living? Am I, am I walking straight? Am I on the narrow path? Or have I just started walking down the wide path? Is my life surrendered to you? Am I dead? Am I following your kingdom? Or am I full of hypocrisy and evil? Am I the very thing that you're trying to reach here in the New Testament in these people who go to church and wear the garb and say the things, but their hearts are dead and they got an outside faith, but the inside is, is, is full of dead men's bones? It says in Hebrews, man, provoke each other in the faith every day to make sure you're in it. Paraphrase. Every day. Every day we challenge each other. How are you doing? Why haven't you been at church? What's going on in your life? Why, we, why do we do that? Because we love them. Because I want people to be asking me those questions. Because I know I'm a sheep and my heart is prone to wander. Anybody else? And so, Lord, we just come before you and, and we ask, Lord, that once again, the heart of your people would be pierced by your spirit and that God all the other things in life would be put so low compared to your word your will your heart in our lives Lord raise up Christ in us let the old man go away just unite us more and more with your spirit every day cleanse us from hypocrisy cleanse us from our sin Lord Sprinkle your blood upon our conscience. Cleanse us, Lord, from just our failings and put our eyes back on truth, back on hope, back on the good words, the things that you have saved us for. And we thank you that Hebrews also says that we can run boldly before the throne to find help, grace, in time of need. Thank you for making the way, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we will not face eternal separation and the wrath of God because of your son. And because of your son, we no longer walk in death, but we now walk in life. Help us when we forget, get confused, Lord. Lord, we love you, and we want to love you in word and deed. And so empower us, Lord, as we, by faith, step out in obedience this morning. Give us that clean conscience. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.